Welcome to S3, the science, sex and sorcery podcast, where we bring you news, reviews, recommendations and deeper discussion from the worlds of science fiction, romance and fantasy. I'm Terence McManus, an indie SFF writer. And I'm Belinda Misson, a romance writer published by HarperCollins UK. Now, this podcast exists because Belinda and I realised that since we were already wasting a bunch of the time we should have been writing, talking about books and movies on the internet instead, we might as well put those discussions to good use. Coming from varying writing backgrounds, one from podcasting and self-publishing, and the other moving from self-publishing to traditional, it allows us to bring a unique perspective and experience to each book we choose. We'll review a new book each episode and give you our insights to the stories and news items from across the publishing world. And speaking of news, the annual Romance Novelists Association Conference was held recently in the UK. This year, Lancaster was chosen as host city and the weekend featured workshops and activities run and attended by members around the globe. It's something I'd like to get to one day, but not quite this year. The Library of the Year Award has been awarded to Harrogate Library in North Yorkshire. It's one that I don't think I've been to yet, but I have added it to my list of places to visit next year. I like to collect memberships from libraries. That's a fun little fact. At this rate, Belinda, you just may as well take a holiday home somewhere in the UK. It'd be nice. It would be nice. And because I'm a huge David Nichols fan, filming has begun on the adaptation of his novel Us for the BBC. It stars Tom Hollander, not Spider-Man's Tom Holland, and he stars as Douglas Peterson. It's something I always look forward to when a David Nichols novel becomes a film or a TV series because he himself gets to write the screenplays, which I think is a dream for a lot of writers. Our Stop by Laura Jane Williams is also a new release. It's a story of Nadia and Daniel and starts off as something like a rush hour crush column in a newspaper. To the cute girl with the coffee stains on her dress, I'm the guy who's always standing near the doors. Drink sometime. And the reason I picked this, it stands out to me because, again, when I'm in the UK, I read the rush hour crush section in the UK Metro because, it, you know, it's fun. And I'd love to see how a love story that starts out there plays out. That'd be really interesting to see. I wonder how many of those go anywhere right it's it's, you know i pick it up every morning it's the first part i read because it's just oh it's pretty cool it's kind of neat too like imagine seeing yourself in there one day yeah the literary version of the kiss cam at the uh, the american baseball yes yes and there's another book it's not romance but i wanted to mention it because it's called the chain and it's written by a melbourne-based author named adrian mckinty it's the story of a chain reaction kidnapping so your child is kidnapped but to get your child back you have to kidnap another child and the chain continues and continues and continues which is just a horrifying thought but it's gaining a massive amount of buzz across social media so i feel like there's going to be a lot of big things come from this particular book Oh, wow, that really sounds like the sort of thing that would be made into, you know, a Netflix series or something like that. Yeah, I was just going to say, it sounds like a Netflix horror film, but not one of those cheap, nasty ones. (laughs) Very cool. Well, in less cool writing news from Australia, there was some more stuff buzzing around the social medias since our last podcast as well. Now, anyone who grew up in Australia since the 90s is probably familiar with the writer John Marsden. He did Tomorrow When the War Began, that whole series, and its sequel series, The Ellie Chronicles, probably some of the things he's best known for. 
uh, but he's also an educator and is currently the principal of a couple of schools in New South Wales. He's got a right. He did at the time when I was in high school, because again, the Tomorrow When the War Began series, we were obsessed with them and they were required reading for our curriculum. I think it was year nine. We had to read the first book. And at the time he held a writing camp out, I want to say out near Gisborne. Yeah, I think it was sort of Western or Central District somewhere, wasn't it? My my wife actually went to that as well. Uh, When she was in high school, she spent, I think it was the day or two days at that, uh, at that writing retreat as well. So Crazy. So what's he been doing? Well, recently he's been under a bit of fire for some comments that he's made about bullying and children who are bullied at school. He compared the practice to peer review, uh, stating that bullied children need to, and these are his words, look at your own likeable and unlikable behaviours and try to reduce the list of unlikable behaviours and unlikable values and unlikable attitudes. And over time, that will probably have a significant effect. This point of view has received a bit of pushback, especially from one of the segments of society that's disproportionately full of bullied children who grew into adults. That is to say, other authors. There's also been some concern, (laughs) all of us. Yeah, Yeah, really. There's also been some concern levelled at the fact that Marsden is predominantly a YA author, and thus this perspective might have a wider dissemination than it would if that point of view was just limited to the schools that he teaches at. Then again, it's one of those things where he also has a new book out at the moment, so the timing of this controversial opinion might just be a little coincidental. And now here we are talking about it as well, so... It's such a loaded statement, like, you know, to look at your own likeable and unlikable behaviours. And some, you know, there are some behaviours that are unlikable. And I think as human beings that, you know, we do need to self-audit and, you know, look at how we treat other people and how we behave around other people because we have a duty of care to others. But when he goes on to talk about Asian students, particularly at Geelong Grammar, where he did teach, I believe, in the 1980s, and he said that as long as they dressed, sounded and integrated completely with Western culture, they were perfectly fine. But to me, that's not looking at an unlikable behaviour. That's just, it's assimilating. It's not throwing things around the room. It's not swearing. It's not yelling. It's not, you know, beating people up. That's removing a culture. And I, I, I think that type of attitude is backwards on so many levels. Yeah, it's definitely not. I mean, that's not peer review, is it? Saying that maybe the thing that you should change is being Asian. Yeah, it's not peer review at all. That's just, you know, you can become the good white Anglo student or you cannot. And if you aren't, well, then if you get picked on, that's your fault, which is just, it's ridiculous. And like you said, there's been a lot of pushback from the writing community. It filled up my feed because so many of us read his books in school. And I'm not sure what school was like for you personally, but I copped a lot of crap for being the kid who did their homework because God knows what would happen if I didn't, who read a lot of books. And as a result, I was one of those, you know, I I got good marks. So you were the teacher's pet, apparently, because you did your homework and you read your books and and you got your good marks. I'm not, you know, I don't know what I could have done to change that. Was I supposed to slack off and fall into line with all the other students who didn't want to do their work? And I wasn't going to stop reading because books, they're like oxygen. 
it was just, it was a natural thing for me to carry a book or to read a book or to go to the library at lunchtime. They were and still are a, a release for me. It's, it's escapism. And I think that's why we read and that's why we write. Yeah, I mean, I absolutely had a similar experience to that too. And like you say, the obvious problem with this sort of sentiment is that it promotes the idea that kids are, are being victimised because of something that they have done or that they are doing, which is undesirable. And when you're pointing that characteristic as, you know, what is an element of that person's actual personality or what's an actual element of their most deeply held makeup, it's just, that's not valuable feedback. It's not peer review to say that they should change those things. You should become someone who's entirely different in order to please, you know, uh, Johnny Dickhead, who's just really you know got his own sets of issues and problems that he's putting out on you that's not valuable feedback it's not peer review it's never going to work absolutely and it's just it's incredibly disappointing for me to read stuff like that because we've got ellie who's the main character in tomorrow when the war began i don't know how i would feel about those books reading them again as an adult but they were always they were the harry potter of our generation we lined up at libraries and at bookshops to get hold of the latest installments yeah, I mean, I did too. It was, I read that first book when I was, what, 10 or 11. I was grade five or six, you know, in the, pulled it out of the, the old primary school library. And even you know, years later, year nine or 10 or something, I was when the Ellie Chronicles came out and I got the first book in that series as a prize from my school you know, as a literary award. So they're such a part of the Australian literary landscape especially for people, you know, who've grown up through the Marsden era. And I'm the same. It really, it sort of breaks my heart a bit to think that today's kids at that same, those same ages and at that same level, who maybe want to go on and become writers themselves, they're going to pick up this, whatever this new Marsden book is, or books with these characteristics in them and sort of get that internalized message in those pages somewhere. It might be a bit of a different experience than uh, than we had reading those books hmm, absolutely but speaking of books with great central messages let's shift away from uh from the mars and yeah, uh, and let's go on to the book that's brought us to the mics today belinda would you like to introduce the afterwife for us which also can i just take a moment to acknowledge that awesome pun title you know now that you've brought it to my attention yes it is a very good pun <laughs> For readers who aren't familiar with this book, the Amazon blurb is, When Rachel and Aidan fell in love, they thought it was forever. She was a brilliant, high-flying scientist. He was her loving and supporting husband. Now she's gone, and Aidan must carry on and raise their daughter alone. But Rachel has left behind her life's work, a gift of love to see them through the dark days after her death. A surprising and emotional story starring an unforgettable heroine, for fans of Together, The Summer of Impossible Things and The Time Traveller's Wife. I actually can't speak for any of those books as to whether it compares to any of them because I didn't make it through The Time Traveller's Wife, but I did love this one. And given that I'd been recommending this one to you for mm, probably the best part of six months, what were your initial thoughts on The Afterwife? Oh, look, I loved it. I was a bit sad that it took me so long to finally get around to picking it up. I'll never ignore a recommendation of yours again, that's for sure. This is <laughs> one of those books I just found so hard to put down. Uh, simple, elegant writing style. It just draws the eye through the story. 
And it really gives you a case of just that one more page itis. You know, you just want to keep turning. Your eyes are burning at night, but you yeah. just, you know, just if you get to the end of the next chapter, then you can put it down. Biggest lie that you've ever told yourself in your life. Yeah, there's only 100 pages left. I can do this. <laughs> and look, that said, it is really engaging and it's really great. But it's funny how it's probably one of the lightest on the sci-fi sci-fi books that I've read in a, in a good while. From the blurb and from hearing you talk about the book, I kind of thought that I, Rachel, would be a bigger character in the novel. I thought the narrative would revolve a bit more around her and the way that she's interacting with the family, developing as a consciousness, advancing as a technology. Um, I'd like to get into a deeper discussion of those elements when we talk specifically about the science fiction element. But for now, I'll go back to saying that I did think it was a brilliant, evocative exploration of loss and grief and how a family has to put itself back together after, after a tragedy. Now, I know you've got a lot to say about the book, though, Belinda. What did you think of The Afterlife? So much to say, and I'm glad that you finally did read this. I have to clarify, though, because I don't think we've mentioned yet, I, Rachel, who we refer to and who becomes the heroine of the book, is a robot. So That's Rachel, a good note. <laughs> Rachel, before she died, was building I, Rachel, and the idea was that I, Rachel, would learn from the family and interact and become more human. Now, when I picked this up, I picked it up in London last Christmas. It was just one of those, I'm in a bookshop and I'm going to spend money because that's what I do. But I'd seen a lot of online chatter about it. Cover had been through my Twitter feed. I hadn't really seen it mentioned as a science fiction book. Initially, when I bought it, probably from a Tesco, let's be honest, because I'm always in there buying books. <laughs> I went into it thinking that it was a straight up and down romance. I read the blurb. I saw the cover. I hadn't read any reviews, though, um, outside of all the positive stuff that I'd read on Twitter. And I don't, as an author, I don't particularly do reviews because books are, are so personal and different from one person to the other that I didn't want to go into it with any expectations either. But you can trust our opinions, fair listeners. Yes. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> Shoot myself in the foot today. Hooray. So one cold, damp afternoon when I got sick of being rained and snowed on, I sat down and began the first couple of pages. And it was just, it was one of those days towards the end of my trip. I was exhausted and wanted to spend the day indoors. And again, just one more page. One more page. One more chapter. Two more chapters. And I finished it. It was just one of those books that you get sucked straight into. And it doesn't let you go until you finish it. But it's interesting that you talk about thinking that Rachel, I, Rachel, might have had a bigger narrative. But she was she was the main character. And the book is broken down into a few different points of view, which was interesting. There's a lot of dual point of view romance books. But we had quite a few characters in this one. So we had Aiden. We had Rachel. We had their daughter, Chloe. There was I, Rachel. Was there grandma in there at a specific point? Yeah, I think she had a couple of point of views in there. Yeah. But I was particularly taken with I, Rachel, and watching her grow and how she logged her information and how that came to inform her behaviour and obviously her changes throughout the book. What did you think of having all the different points of view? Yeah, look, I liked it. I thought they were handled really well, the different perspectives. They each had a different you know, character to them, uh, not only in the literal sense, but also in the sort of metaphorical sense. The, they were written differently the characters felt like fully fleshed out people and they were really coming at it 
from their own angles. I mean, even Rachel's lab partner, who is a little bit present at the start of the story when Rachel is yeah, still around, yep. he gets some point of view chapters and he gets you know a couple yeah. throughout the book as well. We sort of keep we come back and sort of you know a little bit on the outside, just uh, reminding us that he's around basically. And it's it's so hard when you do all that dual point of view stuff to actually get the characters to sound like their own unique characters. Yeah, and I thought it was really done well here. But I guess what I mean when I say that I thought I, Rachel, might have been a bigger part of the book is, you know, even though she is a point of view character, there are so many point of view characters that she's not, I don't really feel like she's the protagonist or the heroine uh, in the way that I guess it's sort of sold there in in the copy. The focus of the novel is almost entirely on the family and their mm, grief yeah. at losing Rachel. So therefore, the focus, I thought, of the novel was a little bit away from I, Rachel, the replacement robot. Because she doesn't really share in that grief. You know, she doesn't have the capacity to share in grief. So yeah, she's sort of yeah, just she can't. there. Yeah, she's sort of just there in the house. And because she can't, she sort of makes a good vehicle to force the human characters to examine their emotions and their sense of loss. But I, yeah. I, I sort of felt like it took a bit away from her as a character in her own right. Yeah, I, I can see see where you're coming from there. I remember when I was reading that I was certainly looking forward to her chapters because she, I think she logged different behaviours and who spoke to her and how those conversations went. But you're right, she was the vehicle for change within the family and forcing them to, like you said, to examine their own grief and how they deal with it and how they move along and how they function now as a family without her. Yeah, and you're right, like a lot of her perspectives and her chapters are written in that very sort of robotic logging this, logging that sort of fashion, which is really interesting and it's a really great flavour to the book as well. But sort of dipping the toe into the idea of a self-actualised intelligence uh, on the Mm -hmm. author's part, I thought, but not really committing to it one way or the other, like you might have done if she was more of a protagonist uh, rather than sort of one of, of the cast of characters. Honestly, I'd probably have liked to see Rachel, or I, Rachel, sorry, I'd have a lot more free agency in the novel or a lot less. So really coming into her own or remaining absolutely alien throughout the novel as this misunderstood and not understandable robot. The sci-fi geek in me, I guess, really wanted to see that meaty treatment of the philosophy and the ethics of her being in this situation in the midst of grief and family. But we sort of swim in the middle of that pool throughout, which made that one element of it a little wishy-washy to me. And like you you say, there is some growth. Do you think it was was wishy-washy or do you think that was deliberate? So there's there's not a solid statement made throughout, but you get to make your own decision. I think you're right. I think it was absolutely a deliberate statement by the author. It was a deliberate choice to treat it in that way. But I think that the maybe unintentional consequence of that is from a strictly science fiction perspective. Yeah, yeah. It made made the science fiction elements a little wishy-washy. The emotional core element of the book is great. And it really, the way of treating I, Rachel, like that, really supports the human side of grief and loss and piecing a life back together after this unthinkable has happened. That choice really supports that examination. Uh, I Mm -hmm. thought that book excelled 
in those elements. And I really empathised with the human family here. Uh, I mean, look, that's, there's a scene in the middle of the book when the family, after Rachel's death, which it's not a spoiler, it happens in like chapter two, they all go to visit grandma's house. And what happens there? That, that broke me in half, Belinda. Yeah, it's interesting because it was such a relatable item to happen. And I think for a lot of us, I mean, we went through all that kind of thing well, with my own grandmother. And it's it's such a strange thing to realise you're at that point in your life. I mean, for me, it happened when I was quite young. And I think it's a lot to put on young kids. But again, it's just something that you have to deal with. See, that's one of the things that I love so much about the internet and books is that you learn from the experience of others that you're not alone. On the internet, it's more often through the sharing of memes. Like we can all laugh at a bit of dark humour and go, oh, yeah, I, I, that's really sad, but I do that too. It, it becomes about the shared experience of life. What I do want to touch on, though, is the philosophy and ethics of I, Rachel. And I think you're right. I don't think the book was trying to tackle them at all. To me, it was more of a discussion about perhaps the emotional response and it's something that's tackled in a film that I watched recently called Marjorie Prime. It stars John Hamm, Gina Davis and Tim Robbins. John Hamm plays Walter who is a holographic representation of Marjorie's husband as he was in the early years of their marriage. She's now suffering from Alzheimer's and he's there to help her remember as she's slipping, well I say Alzheimer's, I think it's just referred to as dementia. But it's really an interesting look or a discussion about whether this type of technology is ethical because the family is concerned that she's jumping into this fantasy world. She's not dealing with her own problems. So is Walter actually providing comfort? Is that kind of comfort healthy or is it just an avoidance tool? We're avoiding reality, not moving on, not dealing with how we're feeling, which can be a tipping point where things can go wrong, if that makes sense. I mean, if it helps with grief, as I think it did, I think High Rachel did in The Afterwife, then it's a good thing. But is it good enough to make it widely available now? Yeah, look, I think, I think that's it too. Like the focus of the book was definitely all around the emotional response of the human family to the event and to I, Rachel being, being with them. And look, like you, uh, it reminded me of, of some other media where similar themes have been played with as well. Uh, the BBC released a series called Humans a few years back, which covered both the ethics of having a live-in domestic robot uh, and also some of the stuff with the aged care as well. I thought it was particularly interesting. I, Rachel, uh, of, of course, at one point goes out of their way to say that you know she has been built as a complete woman. And it, of course, brings up the question of how far do you go with that? I, I mean, I, robots. Yeah, and look... On the one hand, they're just a thing, you know, like they're, they're like a blender, although don't, don't go having sex with your blender, <laughs> anyone. It's, yeah, there are some pertinent don't, differences so in this example. Options. Yeah. <laughs> so it's what would that emotionally do to a household, having, having that there in the middle of the house? Uh, what would it do to the human members of the household if they found out that a family member had been shagging the robot? It's something that is played with in humans, for instance, and it's kind of touched on in the afterwife, but it's never really examined. Does Chloe know that I, Rachel, is sharing her dad's bed uh, every night? Uh, does she ever see the robot coming out of her dad's room in the morning? And 
what does she think is going on there if she does? Does she not charge? Does she charge in the laundry overnight? She did sometimes, but there was uh, there was a lot of moments where it was where, a bit ambiguous. Yeah, she, we, I certainly know that Aiden fell asleep in her arms in the bed after she uh, yes. told him a memory or something. And I'm pretty sure I remember reading in those sections that when he woke up the next morning, she was still there. Uh, so, I mean, that's dancing on the line of what that emotional connection is turning into. But again, like, I don't know, we never hear what Chloe thinks about that or if she knows what's going on. But you'd think it'd be a bit weirded out maybe if you saw the robot that looks exactly like your dead mum coming out of your dad's bedroom at, you know, 7 a.m. 8 o'clock in the morning, the hair everywhere, the lipstick yeah. smeared. Exactly, like heading straight for the shower sort of thing. So, <laughs> like, you know... It's an interesting moral and ethical question, I think. Like that aged care thing you were saying, living in the fantasy world, you know, it's the sort of plot points that they they really tug on the science fiction threads of the afterwife, getting that real sense that there is an argument and there is an exploration to be had here about the emotional attachments between humans and machines and where that line is. But it's not really a part of the novel. It sort of adds flavour to the examination of emotions between the human family members more than it becomes an examination of those sci-fi issues but yeah at the end of the day like i'm also perfectly fine with that because those emotions are explored really well and it absolutely works for what it's trying to do how did you feel about the ending at the time that i read the book i was quite i was surprised it was an unexpected ending but it was still very lovely yeah i don't think i liked it quite as much as you that unexpected notion was great, but it sort of left a, a little crack in the window open there. And sort of like I said earlier, I'd much have preferred to see that get slammed shut, really, so we could sort of dwell on those ethics of I, Rachel's decision at the end of the novel. Um, but we sort of stay in that middle ground. It's not really as serious and impactful a decision as it's set up to be. And it's undeniably sweet, but I do think it sort of takes the wind out of the sails uh, a little bit um, doing that. Because considering yeah, that ending, I can see that. Yeah, and considering that ending, it's important against everything that came before. I've got a question that I'm really interested to hear your perspective on. Do you think that the book would have been substantially different in terms of the theme and in terms of what it just set out to do if the character of I, Rachel, was replaced with a human character? So maybe say like Rachel had a sister or a twin uh, instead of an identical robot or even just a live-in nanny that Rachel had arranged to come and help settle her affairs in the event of her sort of half-expected death. Oh, see, you bring in a nanny and you've got the Captain Von Trapp trope, haven't you? You've got, you know, Captain and Maria dancing through the hills that are alive with the sound of music. If you brought in a twin sister or, or just a regular sister instead of a robot, I think that becomes a little bit creepy and I think it would be harder because the sister or any other relative would also be dealing with grief on some level. So it would be like a little powder keg, I suppose. You wouldn't have the neutrality, is that the right word, Mm. of I, Rachel. She didn't seem to have feelings either way and she wasn't experiencing that grief. So it was as if she was a springboard for everyone else. Whereas if you put a sister in there, those emotions would also go into the mix. Yeah, that's interesting. Because I, I guess I was sort of thinking of it in terms of builds a bit of a maybe, the maybe will they, won't they sort of romance between R. Rachel and, and Aiden. 
And I was sort of thinking about that angle, but not really considering you're absolutely right. Putting a human character in means you are also putting in those emotions of loss and grief and, I guess, responsibility, where when you've got the emotional blank slate of the robot to reflect everything back, maybe it would make the book a bit more different than I was uh, thinking that it would by replacing I, Rachel with basically anyone else. Yeah, it'd certainly sort of be a different book altogether, wouldn't it? At the end of the day, do you think then that it is the fact that Rachel is, or I, Rachel, sorry, <laughs> I keep making that mistake, that I, Rachel is mechanical rather than biological. She doesn't have those emotions. So it opens up these boundaries for the author to explore, which they wouldn't exist if you just had another fully thinking, breathing human being in that place instead. That's a really good question. And now you're making me think back to the book. And I think that you're right because she's mechanical, so she doesn't have the emotions. And I also think it does strip back the boundaries because we aren't being cautious of her feelings. She can't feel. So anything that comes out of the character's mouth, anything they do, I don't think that she had an emotional response. So, yeah, it does open up those boundaries. It is interesting that we keep coming back to grief and loss and how you feel that the characters would still come to the same conclusion at the end. And it's it's making me think of all these things like I, Rachel, was just a, well, I say physical manifestation of all the mental things that would have been going on at the time. So where people might have got lost in their grief and had to wade through all these thought processes alone, she was there for them to act out on. So all the anger and all the frustration that comes out and the loneliness uh, that was Chloe, who was also quite standoffish in the beginning, which you would be for any new person that comes into that sort of family relationship after such a big event. And as for the boundaries of her being mechanical rather than biological, I'd like to think that there would be boundaries there, especially, well, she looks like Rachel. She looks, she speaks, she sounds like Rachel. So perhaps that does add a certain element of boundary, but it also shows that comfort is a strange thing. It shows that human relationships are more emotional than physical, which is a a really big sticking point in Marjorie Prime because Walter is a hologram and he can't physically have a relationship with her because she can walk straight through the middle of him. But Marjorie becomes dependent on having him come and talk to her which I touched on earlier, her family doesn't think that it's healthy, but here he is every day sitting on the couch talking and learning about their past lives. So the more that he gets her to speak, the more he learns and the conversations that he has with interactions with other family members, he learns more and becomes a bit of a library of knowledge, which is what I wrote that was there to do as well. Yeah. But there's one, there's one last question that we did sort of, we volleyed about and we touched on it briefly a little bit before we recorded this podcast, how do you think it would have worked if I, Rachel, had died? As it is, Aiden and Chloe decide that it's time for her to go back to the lab, that they can't keep her, but what if she had died? Uh, yeah, no, I think that's a really, really good question. And obviously... Did I get that gonna... right? Did she go back to the lab or did they just take her? Well, we're like, we probably don't want to spoil the ending too much. But the end result, I guess, is that she ends up she leaves the family. in the lab. She ends up leaving the family. I don't think that's not really spoiling much to say that because yeah, the house guest always leaves the family at the end of a Mary Poppins style story. But Correct. does sort of, in my opinion, back off from really doubling down when it gets the opportunity to on the alienness of 
by Rachel. And I really would have liked to have seen how the family dealt with that, particularly Aiden, because Rachel's husband was most emotionally invested in I, Rachel, by the end of the of the novel. Uh, if we hadn't got, there's a moment in the novel when I, Rachel, leaves the house towards the end. And following that, if the events never took place, uh, if she never went to the restaurant, if we never got the scenes back at the lab, and if we never got the epilogue, I think there would have been room for a really deep examination of what this approaching digital age might offer humanity in terms of dealing with our grief. And sort of like it sounds between Marjorie and Walter, really giving us a chance to examine whether or not that's a healthy thing. At the end of the day, I don't think that was the story that the author wanted to tell in this particular book. And, you know, that, that's okay. It was, still, it was still a really good story of examining the human emotions of loss and grief. And I really enjoyed that story that she told. What do you think if I, Rachel had died, Belinda? If she had died, I think that would have been probably just as bad as when Rachel had died because you can see that there is some sort of emotional connection going on there. So while she's not capable of reciprocating, the characters do use her to sort of temper their own grief and to work through it. And if she was taken away very abruptly then I think that would have been just as difficult as when Rachel had left. She helped Aidan and Chloe to reconnect. She helped them, like I said, deal with grief and move on in their own separate lives. But it's interesting that you brought up the Mary Poppins analogy because it's right. I had to Google that because it's been that long since I've seen Mary Poppins. And she leaves the house. The Mary Poppins character leaves the house. So she comes in, she helps the family reconnect and she goes. So for me, it's, yeah, if she had died, it would, it would have been just as bad as Rachel. And I'm just talking in circles now. So for me, this book is a highly recommended read. Like I said earlier, I just, I devoured it. It was the perfect mix of love, but not necessarily romance, but the human aspect of love, science fiction, loss, and it was just a really good fictional story. Moving on from that, though, because there were way too many books in this world, I'm currently reading a book called Two Weeks Till Christmas and I'm just, I'm loving the use of language and the sentence structure and the way that it's not repetitive. Often when I'm neck deep in writing, which I have been lately, my own reading sort of slips through the cracks and I don't have time and it's just one of those things that falls by the wayside and I needed a really good book to refill the well, so to speak, and this one seems to be doing the job. And what about you? What are you reading right now? Uh, well, speaking of sentence structure and uh, <laughs> nature of repetition, I've just finished reading Salman Rushdie's latest novel, Quixote, uh, which is a modern retelling of Miguel de Cervantes's Don Quixote. Uh, it's an interesting reinterpretation. Uh, it was crammed with way more pop culture and literary Easter eggs than I've seen since I think the time I read Ready Player One. So, oh, so a- I, still haven't, I still haven't got around to reading that. <laughs> Look, it's, they're both worth a read, I think, but... Putting those two right next to each other is probably not a literary comparison that you're going to be fine made uh, made every day. <laughs> and look, for the record, I absolutely agree. This comes with a real stamp of approval, a highly recommended read. Definitely go out and grab a copy and read it. For sure. And keeping on that theme, next time on the Science, Sex and Sorcery podcast, we'll be trading robots for romance with Red, White and Royal Blue by Casey McQuiston. And I hope I pronounced that right. 
this one, like the Afterlife, has just been all over my social media feeds. It's all over Goodreads. It's getting rave reviews. And so I'm itch really itching to get into it. I've got a copy here. I managed to pick up a, an autographed copy a few weeks ago. Oh, nice. And if, and if you want to hear about it the moment the podcast drops, you can subscribe to the podcast through Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and most other places that you get your podcasts. You can also listen and find updates at www.s3pod.com. Stay tuned and we look forward to talking to you soon. Bye.